Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and this is part two of my interview with Dr. Trelock Orerjian. Trelock is the director of the Irish Studies Program at the University of Montana, Missoula. He was recruited by the university in 2001 to develop the program and to teach Irish language and culture. In this part of our interview, Trelock describes how Irish immigrants to the United States in the 1800s quickly organized and became a political, cultural, and military force in the United States and Ireland in the 20th century. You've done a great job of standing in both cultures, between the two rivers, as some would say. That's probably, yeah, but I've been very fortunate, too, because my wife is very supportive of all of this, you know? I mean, I actually think I have to tell her to tone it down a small bit because she's very nationalist, like Irish Americans tend to be. Uh, they tend to be an awful lot more nationalist than more... Um, explain what that means. Explain what that means. Well, they tend to be very anti-English, uh, which you, you can understand because, you know, an awful lot of the Irish Americans, the Irish Americans, of course, in their, I suppose, their history goes back to the, uh, you know, the time of the famine and later and the fact that they were driven out of Ireland or there was all these in, the injustices of society in Ireland and politics. And, well, it, it started before that, though, right? It the, did. The, uh, yeah. the, this taste for the English started way back in the 1600s with oh, it did. Oliver Cromwell. and Absolutely. Can you speak but, to that a little bit? Well, yeah, that, well, yeah, that's... We don't have to get off into deeply, but the... But that's the cornerstone of Irish-American political identity, that, okay, that the Irish were driven out of Ireland by the English, yes. going back to, as you say, the time of Oliver Cromwell, you know, and that's never going to change. So there's built into that identity this natural antipathy towards England and the English, you know, that you don't really find uh, in Ireland. There's a certain kind of, at the moment, you know, that could change in the morning, politics could change again, and you might find yourself in a situation in Ireland similar to that which prevailed during the time of the Troubles, and particularly well, around the time of the hunger strikes. There's a, I, I draw a parallel, help me with this, being a historian, but you must have some real empathy for uh, indigenous people in the United States because the Irish were the indigenous people of Ireland, and they they got dealt a similar hand. They were dealt the, the Indians. Yeah, and I mean, you know, people have shown the parallels that a lot of the strategies that were employed here, you know, by stealing the land, putting them in reservations, you know, I mean, these were started in Ireland. I mean, this is what Cromwell is talking about, to hell or to Connacht. Connacht was the reservation. Right. This is where the Irish were going to go, and the land was going to be divi divided up among the... Uh, the plantations. The, 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 yeah. But word, that word was used back then, right? The plantations was, of Ulster. Well, the, plant, well, it, the first one was actually in Leash Offaly uh, back in the 1550s. Uh, that didn't really uh, work, and the plantation of Munster didn't really work. But the plantation of Ulster certainly did. And you had then, of course, the um, the Presbyterians and the Protestants came in and took the land. And then you had basically the um, the basis for a conflict then between the native Catholic and the, uh, the colonizing Protestant. Right, because and the native Catholics weren't allowed to vote, weren't allowed to have land. They were driven off the their own. 
right. that were driven off the land. And they were basically, uh, it's almost like they didn't exist. They had no uh, um, legal standing at all. I mean, this goes right back to the time of the Normans. If you look at the Norman invasion, well, you have the emergence in Ireland of basically two societies. One is Gaelic, one is Norman. And in that Norman society, they eventually set up their own parliament in Dublin, but no Gaelic mm. Irish could participate in that parliament. Also in the laws that no Norman could be held accountable for killing a Gaelic, uh, an Irishman. Jeez. It was not considered a capital offence. Okay? Yeah. So you had this two the different legal system, different polity, you know, and then, uh, and this has remained a division in Ireland right down to the to the present day. I mean, if you look at where we are with the Irish of America, well, modern Ireland is a creation of uh, Irish America. And what mm. I mean by that is that after the famine, an Irish American nationalist movement developed, first of all with the Fenians, then Clan Nagoyle, and they were the ones that brought the pressure on the British government to do something about Ireland. They were the ones who set up, they were Fenians, they set up their Fenian organization, set up the Land League for the transfer of the land. Explain what a it, Fenian is. So it's the Fenian Brotherhood. So what happens here after the time, after the famine, you had mass migration. And among those that came out were members of a revolutionary group in Ireland called the Young Irelanders. One of their more famous leaders was Thomas Francis Maher, the former acting governor of Montana, of Montana. who's actually called... Yeah, he's the guy who gave Ireland their national flag, the tricolor, and he's the one who's considered to be the father of Irish-American nationalism. Well, explain, what, explain when, what happened to him. Okay, so Mar and the Irish-American, so the, 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 this group are called the Young Irelanders. They come here to the United States and um, in, in the 1840s. When they arrive, they arrive in places like New York and Boston and so forth, and they arrive to Irish areas that are basically dominated um, by the Catholic Church. Okay, so it's the Catholic Church is providing the, um, all the social services, okay? They're the ones that are providing, they are, are printing the newspapers, you know, mm. that are shaping a political opinion. Right. And this is at a time when there's a lot of anti-Catholic um, prejudice. It's very anti-Catholic. And the, the Catholic Church in America, their position in regard to it all is that we create a society within a society, if that's making sense. Now, the great leader of this society, our Catholic society, in um, America is the Archbishop of New York, John the Dagger Hughes. I don't know if you ever heard of the Dagger. No. Well, the Dagger, as a young man, uh, his sister died, and as she was being buried, the priest could not go into the graveyard. And what he did is he picked up earth, the priest did, blessed that earth, gave it to the young boy, sent him in, and said, put that on your sister's grave. I cannot go in there. No, that's... that that. Uh, really st uh, stuck with him. He went to America, he became a priest, and then he became the Archbishop of New York. This was at the time when you had a lot of, you know, um, intimidation of and pogroms of Catholic communities who were born in Catholic churches. When, what, so year, anyway, what, year, what year would that have been? We're talking about the 1840s. Yeah, and that, that's when the Irish were coming to the United States in mass, when, so that was causing that uh, to, uh, to watch, of, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the dagger, 
basically went back to his Irish nationalist roots and announced in New York that if another Catholic church, house, orphanage, hospital was um, burned again, he would turn New York into another Moscow. In other words, he'd burn it to the ground. Wow. And he was serious because... And he had that kind of power, too. Because he? he had the ancient order of Hibernians. He went, apparently, there's a story told that he went to Tammany Hall in full bishop's regalia and told him what he was going to do and then invite him to look outside in case anybody disbelieved him uh, to see who was going to do it. There was about 30,000 uh, members of the ancient order of Hibernians out there. And that's when everything changed. <laughs> now, this is the dagger. So it's into this environment now, yet you're coming uh, that the young Irelanders and those fleeing the famine uh, arrive. Mm -hmm. Now, the dagger, he's very outspoken, um, but these young Irelanders, they're revolutionaries and they're defiant. So what they do, they set up their own newspapers that aren't exclusively Catholic, they're nationalists. They talk a lot about Ireland, Irish culture, the wrongs and injustices to the Irish in Ireland. And they started to build up this sense of responsibility, not just to the church, but also to Ireland itself, this nationalist mm. identity. What they also do is they set up regiments of men to train to go back and fight for Ireland. And they prevail upon the, uh, na the militias in the States to absorb these regiments. So the second Irish regiment is brought into the, um, one of these regiments set up by Michael Dawney is brought into the um, New York militia and it becomes the, uh, the 69th regiment, the famous fighting 69th. This is repeated in New York, um, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, all over the northern states. So you end up with these regiments, and to get into them, you had to be either Irish or Irish-American. So if you showed up and you were Italian, they'd tell you to get lost, okay, <laughs> or German. Uh, yeah. It gets so, it, it reaches a point where the actual governors ban these ethnic regiments. But in these regiments now, in 1858, Dawney and o John O'Mahony um, set up what's called the Fenian Brotherhood. And the Fenian mm. Brotherhood is a nationalist organization that is going to train the men, you know, in these militias and then bring them back to Ireland to fight for Irish freedom. That's who the Fenian oh. Brotherhood are. These guys become so powerful that if you look at, a, in the, at the start of the, before the Civil War, the Prince of Wales comes to the, in New York. The 69th Regiment, all Irish and Irish-American, is ordered to parade in front to honor him. The leader of the 69th, Michael Cochran, is also the head of the Fenian, uh, Fenian oh. movement in New York. He refuses and he's arrested and he's going to be court-martialed. He says, no, we're not going to honor a prince who stood by and whose government led to the, the, um, the killing or uh, the death of one million Irish and the emigration of another million. So what happens, he's going to be court-martialed, but <clears throat> the Civil War breaks out, and these regiments all join with the Union. It's not about slavery. Oh. For them, it's about the Union, because the Union it represents the Republic, the Republic they want to create in Ireland, they're Republicans. Uh -huh. So they join the army. In the south, you have Irish as well. They're also part of the Fenian Brotherhood. They have also joined regiments in the Confederacy. Uh -huh. 
So now you have these Fenian regiments that are in the Confederate Army. You have them in the Northern Army. When they go into battle, they go in with two flags, okay? You see the Confederate flag in the South and the Fenian flag, or it's the uh, Stars and Stripes in the North and the Fenian flag. And they do their own drills. So you have a drill as part of, you know, the Union Army, the Confederate, and then you have the Fenian. In 1863, they set up their own convention in Chicago, the Fenian Convention, okay, to elect right, their members. Right. The Northern Army they, uh, actually permit the Fenian officers from the Confederate Army to pass through their lines, attend the convention in Chicago, and then go back down to the Confederate Army again to resume the Civil War. That's amazing. And they fought each other, sir, at Fredericksburg when the Irish charged Mary's Hill that time. It's the Irish on the Confederate side that are defending him. And there's a great, if you ever go to the movie, there's an anecdote that uh, at the end of it, that uh, of this slaughter of the Irish Brigade, Stonewall Jackson gives the order to give him the black flag. In other words, kill everyone. Don't allow him to take anyone alive off the field. The Fenians in the Confederate Army who were defending against the Irish Brigade refuse and threaten to shoot anyone who does try to uh, harm anybody taking them off the field. And then as they're taking them off the field, they actually take off their berets and put them on their bayonets and start calling out Goyalabu, Goyalabu, which means Irish to victory. And if you ever look at the movie Gods and Generals, he actually captures that, isn't it? You can see he actually includes that. Gods and Generals is the name of the movie? That's the name of the movie, but that scene at Fredericksburg, where the Irish Brigade charged Mary's Hill, uh, and it's the Irish and the uh, Confederate Army. How did the Confederates, it seems, uh, how did, I I don't get how the Finians on both sides could even fight one another when they had just come, not, uh, not well, they just arrived to the United States and they have to fight one another in the Civil War. But they had taken an oath to do so, right? You know, and they but that's did. amazing that that they were powerful enough to stop the war at least for a while. And and uh, I don't, that must have been an amazing convention in Chicago, having both sides, the Confederates and the Union, um, breaking bread together. Yeah, that's for a while. Well, they were all Irish and they were all Fenians, so they didn't see themselves as Confederates. They didn't see themselves as Union. They saw themselves as Fenians. Right. That's right. what they were. And what's interesting as well, you know, at the end of the war, the Fenians, so Captain O'Neill, who was in the Union Army, the British had been meddling, of course, right through the Civil War. So the Fenians now had actually established themselves based on the want of the Republic, so they're imitating the United States. They have their own White House in New York. <laughs> they have their own Congress. They have their own Senate. They have their own Constitution, the whole lot. But at the end of the war, they decided to invade Canada. Okay? Now, a lot of people would tell you, well, they wanted to take over Canada, sit down and swap it for Ireland. But that wasn't what was going on at all. The head of this whole um, expedition to Canada was Captain O'Neill. He was actually relieved of his position to do this in the Union Army. And he led the Fenians across the Niagara River in 1867. The uh, uh, the Canadians sent out the uh, Ottawa Rangers uh, so and met them at the Battle of Ridgeville. Let me let me just make sure I'm clear here. the the uh, The federal government, the U.S. government, was kind of com- condoning 
That's exactly what was going on. And it's the only way you can interpret it, because here's what happens. They cross the Niagara River. Now, you're talking about these Fenians who have spent four years in a civil war. Well, if you spend four years engaged in warfare, you're probably going to be pretty good at pretty, it. Pretty good, yeah. So what happens when they send out the Ottawa Rangers to, at the Battle of Ridgeway, the Fenians basically wipe them off the field. You drive them off the field. They could have probably slaughtered them, but they didn't, you know, and they won every engagement along the way. Three days into this excursion into Canada, Johnson declares the Neutrality Act. Three days. And then cuts off the supplies to them. So they have to come back where the, uh, the uh, Union Army is waiting for them. They take the rifles from the Fenians, give them money or tickets to go home, and then send the rifles back onto them. What's going on here, Walter? Well, well why did Johnson uh, stop things at three days in? Be because he was sending a message. Oh. You meddle in the affairs of the United States again. These are the people we're going to send to you. Oh, it was a That's lesson. That's all he needed to do. It, it was a lesson. Ooh. It was. This is the first, uh, I suppose, time they used, the U.S. used proxy armies, the Fenians. So but, the United States was a training ground for some of the things that were to happen in Ireland in the uh, the uprising, it, the, Easter, was, yeah. the Easter uprising in 1916. Correct. Right. Correct. It was. So, I mean, Thomas Francis Marr, you know, when he delivered that famous speech, he's, he's known as Mayor of the Sword because he delivered a speech in Dublin um, when uh, back in the 1840s. And in that speech, Daniel O'Connell, who was the known as the Liberator because he had uh, successfully led a campaign for Catholic emancipation, wanted every member of his party to swear that they would never take up arms, okay? And Maher said, you can't do that. You may find yourself in a situation where the only way that you can achieve justice is by the use of the sword. So mm -hmm. he refused to accept that, and he became known as Maher of the Sword. But the speech he gave, you know, was a very conciliatory, logical, reasonable speech, you know. The real sword speech is when it was the one he gave in Virginia City in Montana in 1866. And he concluded that speech by saying that the Irish of America would train up the army that would free Ireland. And that's exactly what happened. Uh -huh. So if you look at the course of Irish history, you look at the great achievements. Well, one of the great achievements was the Land League, where the land was transferred back to the, um, to the Irish landowner. Now, the Fenian... Um, proclamation of the Republic in 1867, their constitution explicitly states that the transfer of land from the English landlords to the Irish tenant is one of their goals. So the Land League was established in 1879 to um, bring about the transfer of the land. All those involved were Fenians. Wow. They were all Fenians. One of them was very well known, Michael David. He actually came here to Butte, Montana in 1881 to a huge civic uh, reception, which was attended by Marcus Daly and William Clark. What, uh, describe uh, Butte, Montana in the 1880s. I mean, that, there, it was Irish. It was... It was of, primarily, it was made up primarily of uh, Irish miners, yeah. Mostly, they were the dominant ethnic group by far and away. They're probably outnumbered. So, well, here in here in Colorado in 1880, it was Michael Mooney in Leadville who led uh, 
a mining strike. 5,000 miners just put down their tools and left and marched down the streets of Leadville. So not only in Butte, but in Leadville, and there is, I'm, I'm imagining that there was some back and forth between t those two communities. Well, but here's the difference. You see, the big mining magnet in, uh, in Butte was Marcus Daly. He was Irish. He was Catholic. He was a member of the ancient order of Hibernians. Hmm. He was a guy who actually came up as a miner, and he paid his miners the best wages. In the, there was no mining strike. We had no strikes. Huh. Got paid so well. He wow. also instituted the eight-hour day and brought in all kinds of changes there for uh, working conditions for miners. So, so there was probably a lot of stories back and forth between Leadville and Butte about, wait a second, why are, why are we uh -huh. being treated so, so poorly? I mean, thousands of people died in Leadville around that time, uh, Irish largely. Yeah, oh. Exactly. And the same what happened in Butte after the death of Daly, once Daly left. I think Dave Emmons once described Daly like an old Gaelic chieftain huh. that operated a system of clientship. You take care of the tribesmen, they'll take care of you, huh. you know. Mm -hmm. So, but, and Daly, uh, Daly's father, Luke Daly, was a member of the Young Ireland movement, the same movement that Thomas Francis Marr was a leader of. Huh. He was a nationalist as well. But I suppose when you look at what happens then here in the States, you have the Land League, then you have the Home Rule Party. Well, the Home Rule Party was in complete and total disarray. And in the 1880s, the head of the Irish nationalist organization here in America, they were called Clan Oil. These were the Fenians. This was the name they now had, Clan Oil. Their leader was John Devoy. And he invited Charles Stuart Parnell to come out to uh, America. Parnell did so. And over two months, Parnell gave a hundred lectures. He addressed the joint houses of Congress and went home to Ireland to support the Land League with three hundred thousand dollars in his back pocket. No, just think of that. <laughs> three hundred thousand so dollars in, no, in that time was that huge. Was huge. With that money, he set up the Irish Home Rule Party, the Irish Parliamentary Party. And uh -huh. he was able to pay the MPs. They couldn't be bribed anymore. He introduced, um, built up a system where there was proper supervision, proper accountability. There was adherence to party line. He actually created a very powerful political party in Ireland. And even though he himself would die in 1890, they were successful in, in attaining home rule. Wow. So when home rule is passed, it's in 1912, the home rule bill. We're going to get home rule, but it was suspended because of the First World War. But here's where things go wrong. The leader of the Home Rule Party at the time was John Redmond. And John Redmond, when the war breaks out, stood up in Parliament and then at Wooden Bridge and announced that the Irish would fight for Britain in the uh, First World War. Mm. Well, the Irish of America says, oh, no, we won't. Uh, we are not going to fight for the British Empire. So this is this much more intense anti-English uh, sentiment in America. They were very pro-German. And what they did is they decided to um, destroy that Home Rule Party, which they had created. And they say that. You look, can read the reports from the Irish-American conventions, the Clan and conventions, where they say, we created that party, we're going to finish that party. So the, the, the Irish... 
in in Ireland were going to fight with the English. That's exactly the what English. They, that's what yeah. And but the Irish in the United States were more German in their leaning and and well, so it wasn't that it was a case that they weren't ever pro German, but basically, you know, if um if you're England's enemy, you're my friend. That was the base of the relationship with the Germans. But they said, no, we are not going to do that. So what they did is they organized the 1916 Rising. Uh, and what's interesting about the 1916 Rising was that it was at the Rising that the tricolor, which is the Irish national flag, was flown for the first time. Hmm. Well, who decided that? It was decided the year before, in 1915. So as a run-up to this Rising... You had an event that took place on the 1st of August. It was the funeral of an old Irish-American Fenian called O'Donnell, Dermot O'Donovan Rossa. And he died in, in, uh, in America, and his body was sent home for a nationalist funeral. There's nothing like a funeral to get the blood running in the veins. <laughs> but on the coffin that went back to Ireland wasn't the Fenian flag. The flag that was associated with Irish Nazis was the green flag with the, uh, with the, with the, the golden harp. Uh, it was the Irish tricolor. The Irish Americans announced, and they say that, that this is our national flag. It went on the coffin back to Ireland, and at the gravesite, Padraig Pierce gave that famous address where he talked about life springs from death and from the graves of dead patriot men and women spring living nations. You know, the rulers of the Wems, as well, by kind of getting confused. But what he concludes is saying that the, the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And what Ireland holds these graves, Ireland and free, shall never be at peace. But in this speech, he talks about the Fenian program. He's talking about this program that's coming out of America. And he identifies it. Well, he says, the Ireland we want is an Ireland that's not merely free, but Gaelic as well. Not merely Gaelic, but free as well. What's he talking about? Well, with the Gaelic, he's talking about cultural autonomy or independence. With the freedom, it's political. This is the whole nature of Irish-American identity. The Irish is the cultural element. The American is the political element, the Republican element. And Irish-Americans basically were... The, are the originators of the whole Gaelic revival in Ireland mm. and also the move for nationalist independence. But they're the ones that decide that the, the tricolour is going to be their flag, and that's the flag that flies in 1916. Oh. And that's the flag, it's a national flag today, Thomas Maher's flag. So Ireland and I Ireland and America are linked deeply. Yeah, joined yeah. at the hip, definitely. But without the Irish of America, I don't think the language in Ireland would be spoken anymore. I don't think the music, the games, any of that. that they all, if you look at the Gaelic Athletic Association that I mentioned earlier, that was established in Ireland in 1884, well, there was actually the Irish American Gaelic Athletic Association that were playing games in the 1870s here. Mm. The great um, cultural movement was called the Gaelic League, you know, this was the organization that trained up a whole generation of revolutionaries. And if you read any history book, you will discover that the Gaelic League was established in Dublin in July 1893. Now, if that's the case, would somebody mind explaining to me 
How is it that the mayor of Bew, P.J. Harrington, was a member of the Gaelic League in 1890? <laughs> because it was established in New York, Douglas Hyde came to New York. He was brought to these different Irish classes, Irish uh, cultural events and activities, and decided that we need to do this in Ireland. Well, I can, they were copying what was happening here. I can see why you have a doctorate in cultural na nationalism. You were, you were reared. Well, you see, it's, it's the culture. It's not the party. You know, even with Ireland, they talk about the political divisions, you know, the North and the South and reuniting Ireland. And that, to me, isn't such a big deal. I mean, the real unifying factor is culture. Right. And if you want independence, if you look at the whole thing with the Gaelic League, there was a great um, priest and labor leader called Father Peter York in San Francisco. He actually brought out the leader newspaper. And he was one of the great promoters. I don't know if you're familiar with the papal document um, or Rerum Novarum. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. I could tell you. Oh, okay. So in that, the, what the, the, the church teaching is, right, that the source of value is labor. So in, um, in any economic activity, the most important factor is labor. Labor is the only thing that can convert capital to weight. If you've got a gold mine, it's no good to you. Or if you have a million acres, it's no good to you unless you have the labor to the, uh, extract the wealth. Right. And in that whole thing, there's a whole breakdown of the need for a family wage, you know, there's a need for proper working conditions, pensions, and all this kind of stuff. And Father Peter York, okay, um, is, very, is among a large group of these priests that are promoting this teaching. It's kind of like the foundational document of the labor movement, even though you're never going to hear that, but that's basically what you're talking about. It has a huge impact on Marcus Daly. Actually, that whole teaching had a huge impact, even though this is 1890, that teaching was known and it impacted Bismarck, who has established um, the unification of Germany. When he tried to impose Russian, Prussian hegemony, he ended up with the Kulterkampf. There was a huge cultural uh, revolution in Germany that mm -hmm. almost broke out into a civil war. So he went back, took this teaching from the Archbishop of Mainz, which is basically what's in Rerum Novarum, and implemented in Germany, where the worker gets a much larger share of the surplus value. Okay? So it's not, labor is not considered a business expense. Yeah. Okay. The labor gets to share in actually the proceeds of the adventure. But anyway, this um, leader comes back to Ireland, uh, Father Peter York. It's in 1899, and he gives an address called The Turning of the Tide. And that address was probably the most important speech delivered in that whole period because it focused people's minds on the importance of the culture, the need to preserve the culture. And his main point was that your oppressor, your master, does no longer, no, will no longer need a military if he can take your culture, because if he takes your culture and your language, he has access to your mind, and he can determine what your mind will receive. And what your mind receive, will receive, in other words, the information, will shape your whole out, uh, perspective on the world in which you live, you know, right. and your place in that world. So he was, uh, the point was that this whole cultural revolution, this movement to save the language, was critical to preserve the independence that may be won politically. And, and you're part of that. 
that that speech sort of epitomizes what you've been trying to do to preserve and protect the culture of Ireland. I think that that's part of it and unity to bring about unity because we can do an awful lot more together than we can ever do individually. And I think if the Irish came together as a community and worked more closely to a community, there's no end to the things that we could achieve. I mean, if you look back at what our people before us have achieved with, you know, in comparison to us, very, very little resources. And you look at what we have. And I'm not talking about financial resources. Yeah. You know, money is just money. But it's the creativity, you know, that p people have, you know, these things, these different gifts and talents and so forth that people can make available that do change life. Money ain't going to do that. Right. You know, well, getting people working together to, um, you know, um, build up a more just and equitable society for, uh, for people working together. They can do that. That was Treylock O'Reardian. Treylock is hoping to take a sabbatical and return to Ireland for a year to write his book on Irish nationalism. For more on Immigrant Stories, you can go to our archive at immigrantstories.net where you'll find over 200 stories. You can also access the stories as a po Apple podcast. Or you can look for us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>